Good evening. I'm Axis. I'm Moner. And you're listening to The Late Night, a horror podcast. Good evening, everyone. It's July, and as we continue to wade through what can only be described as a summer of strange, Axis <laughs> and I decided to dive into some weird and surreal horror. Hell yeah. This evening, we'll be watching Cheng Che and Roy Ward Baker's The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires from 1974, and we'll be following that with the cult classic Haosu. Directed by Nobuhiku Obayashi from 1977. We'll be right back after the tone. Stay tuned. So, the legend of the seven <laughs> golden vampires. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a charmer. It's a mm. it really it just it feels like a movie where it's just a real shame that things didn't work better. You know, <laughs> I mean, it just. So many things were there and a good recipe for something so exciting, but then it's like you overneeded the dough and it ended up as a, a brick afterwards. <laughs> More or less, yeah. Yeah. I mean, some people consider this to be Hammer Horror's best movie ever. <laughs> so it is an interesting film. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will say that even though The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires may not appear to be much on the surface, there is kind of a lot to take. Yeah. In. It's one of the first major films depicting Jiangxi, which are undead that are reanimated by Taoist priests like Ka, who is played mm-hmm. by Shen Chan. However, these vampires do not drink blood. Uh, they drink qi, or life force. <laughs> and that's kind of the big thing that I wish was explored more with regard to this film. Because Buddhist culture is so rich that there was tons of stories and backstories that we could have layered into this yeah, film. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Hammer Films had such chops in horror, and the Shaw Brothers had such chops in Kung, in kung Fu, that it seems like it should have been a perfect mm-hmm. pairing, especially when you have this degree of lore to pull on. But it seems like they kind of just picked the surface-level stuff, and it's a weird amalgamation of kind of western vampire tropes and the bare minimum of the you know kind of john sure tropes but yeah. without any explanation or exploration of that Precisely. so it does not translate particularly well to western audiences it it was a sloppy combination the first time around yeah. i think that that's that's exactly it it's like because there's there were by that point in history there were tons of films from hammer horror mm-hmm. and from shaw where they both had you know, perfectly functioning backstories, but in this case, no. Yeah, just down yeah. to the tiniest, like, basic bits of the writing, like, the timeline of the movie itself makes no sense. Like, the 1804 to 1904 um, starting dates of the movie, the idea that yeah. Dracula has been in China for a hundred years entirely invalidates the plot line of the rest of the Dracula Hammer Horror films. <laughs> and, like... Well, there's there's a... The, the interesting thing there is that that is not Professor Abraham Van Helsing. That is apparently Lawrence Van Helsing. Mm-hmm. So um, what that implies is that somewhere in Victorian England, there was a clone factory <laughs> of Peter Cushing lookalikes where Van Helsing's just popped up and went to work. Yeah. Did you know Van so. Helsing was a twin all along? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> It's the Clone Wars I mean, with Van Helsing. It would explain all of the character discrepancies as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, I do just feel bad, though, because every single story I could find about the production this fi- of this film is, like, a story of conflict. I mean, Christopher mm-hmm. Lee wouldn't agree to p- play Dracula, which, I mean, no shade there. I understand why. <laughs> I mean, and then John, uh, John Forbes Robertson was thrilled to play Dracula and then was livid when he found out that he had been dubbed. The Shaw brothers had no faith in the direction of Roy Ward Baker, so they brought in their own largely uncredited director, right. Cheng Che, like you said, and Cheng he directed Cheng. all the action sequences. But then subsequently, most of Cheng Che's work and his added scenes um, were then cut from the British cut. release and then slashed even further for the American release. It's a huge waste. Yeah, absolutely, because those were good scenes. And, they were. And then uh, the continuity supervisor, uh, Renee Glini, she said that working with the two studios was, and I quote, a big experience, which was politely extrapolated as language differences and less politely as Roy Baker constantly screaming at the Chinese actors to stop spitting on set, which quite frankly Jesus. seems like the least of his problems. 
Right. And then it's kind of a funny thing because as somebody who's lived in another country for many years mm-hmm. now, I have to admit that something that people do worldwide is they yell in their language at aliens. <laughs> and that's kind of really a big mistake. Like, it's really weird because if you yell louder at me in German or Spanish or any other language, I'm not going to understand what the fuck you're yeah. saying. You can say it louder. I didn't get the word the first yeah. time. Your volume is not going to make any difference whatsoever. Yeah, I have no clue. And so. especially not if you're criticizing me for a thing that is culturally normal in the culture that you're standing in. So it, Precisely. Yeah. And I mean, years later, Roy Ward Baker came back and said that, quote, the whole film was slipshod and nobody knew what anyone was doing, unquote. And that the film was, again, uh, quote. Which is weird because shouldn't the director be in charge of that Oh, shit? yeah, he should be. And he continued, quote, yeah. Uh, the film was an absolute failure and just like he says a failure an absolute failure that is not what you want to hear somebody say about their own movie (laughs) right i've always wondered whether or not i mean because christopher lee was was dracula the other seven Mm -hmm. times that hammer horror did a dracula film this is the only fucking time that christopher Mm -hmm. lee was not dracula and which is where i genuinely wonder if lee read the script or if cushing knew that lee wasn't coming (laughs) like it's like where's where's christopher (laughs) what do you mean christopher's not coming or like you know you get like a phone call from lee yeah right i mean do you remember that time you owed me 50 pounds and didn't pay me back (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, I heard that on Christopher Lee's part, it wasn't even necessarily the script for this one, is that he was so bur- badly burned after the last one, which I think was what Dracula uh, AD 1972, I think it was, that yeah. he hated that so badly that he was like, I'm never doing this again, which is... I mean, I imagine really must saying have made something it... considering the other six. Exactly. And I imagine must have made it worse <laughs> once this was handed on his desk. And he's like, really? Like insult added to injury? Come on. <laughs> Come on. But it reminds me of the time that, that like the rock gets all these different scripts. It's like in a I think it's in a funnier die, uh, a funnier die skit. And they're like, you know, you could play this, you could play this, you could play this. And then they have him try to be Napoleon Dynamite, Napoleon Dynamite 2. And he's just like, fuck yourself, I'm leaving. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it just, the whole thing makes me feel for Peter Cushing. Because it's amazing the things that manage to be bad, given the talent of the people on the set. All of the martial artists were talented. And Peter Cushing, bless him, gave his best virtuoso performance of a script that read like hot garbage. And, like, mm-hmm. as an actor, that is such a surreal position to be in. I mean, you obviously always want to do your best, but when you're given a script with no depth to it, you're for- forced to make a choice between phoning it in or giving your all to something that you know is not good. And Peter Cushing standing at that podium giving the most dry, exposition-heavy speech, but just, like, giving it his Oscar performance. <laughs> I weep for him, but he truly... We don't deserve him. We don't deserve Peter right. Cushing. <laughs> I would just like to hop back a second here for the lore, though, mm. because for those who, for authors who are interested in learning more, Jiangxi literature has been around since yeah. the Xing Dynasty of the mid 1600s. And one text of note is Zibu Yu's "What the Master Would Not Discuss," and we'll post links to that. Um, I think it's actually a pretty pricey academic text and hard copy. I think it might be better to get the Kindle version if it's available. However, as it's based on work from the 1700s, I would like to say to everybody, I think it would be a very neat opportunity mm-hmm. for someone to log some more horror literature into LibriVox. Yeah. Uh, LibriVox.org is a great source of literature uh, for horror fans everywhere. Uh, we have mm-hmm. a lot of different opportunities to log that. I think it would be really great uh, for that to be shared with the rest of the horror community. Uh, the other thing I would like to say, uh, of course, you know, Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires was also a lot of firsts and lasts. Um, when Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires hit theaters, the one, it was terrible. I'm not going <laughs> to deny that it wasn't, like, by modern standards, it hasn't aged well. Um, I, I mean, we were even saying that, you know, during the watch along, you know, this could be remade, mm-hmm. definitely could be remade. It would, it would benefit from a polish and a reshoot. But, it paved the way for a lot of fun Jiangxi movies in the 1980s, like Robo Vampire and the Mr. Vampire series, and further kung fu horror film installations like Oily Maniac. And kung fu horror paved the way for modern action horror franchises like Blade, Underworld, Resident Evil, and we still have brilliant directors like Stephen Chow of the Kung Fu Hustle franchise, creating interesting hybrids that we're seeing, like his Mermaid and Journey to the West series. Mm -hmm. So whether you like this film or you hated this film, it did pave the way for a lot of 
other great stuff that came afterward. And, you know, I think that it was just so bad that every other fucking director went, you know what? I could do that so much better. <laughs> and that is normally the way that most good artists start. They look at something and go, you know, this really sucks. I can do better than this. This got published. And then they go out and they do better. Yeah. yeah. And it's something with such rich lore. Like, I want to talk about the the Zhangshu themselves a little mm-hmm. bit because they're just so cool. Like, this month, I mean, mm-hmm. prepare for me talking both about both of these movies it's just a lot of ghost and monster research (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) because i love them um but so just a little bit of the basics obviously do your deep reading if you're into it but um to kind of get the the little the the basics of the juncture it translates to um hopping vampire or hopping zombie um and those would be our Mm -hmm. good friends the the seven golden vampires in this case so these guys are reanimated corpses in various states of decay, corresponding with different degrees of nasty appearance, but all of whom are in this stiff rigor mortis that keeps their joints locked as they bounce around the world, which means that they're generally unable to bend their limbs. And in the traditional lore, they are typically shown with a paper talisman of a sealing spell attached to their foreheads and wearing the coats and hats of the Qing Dynasty officials. So not quite the Flava Flav bat swag that we saw in the movie, but uh, something like that, I guess, (laughs) in the loosest sense of the word. (laughs) Um, But... We also had Leyland Van Helsing, so there were definitely liberties fucking taken. I mean, I think that's... That um, was another great first and last. I just want to see him in Castlevania walk in and get stabbed to death. And then I know. I'm like, okay. Yeah, I, I really want an offshoot novel of, like, the utterly pedestrian life of uh, of Leyland Van Helsing. Just like, oh, I went to the tea shop today and there wasn't the specific oolong I wanted. I'm devastated. I hit upon a gilf and she said no. <laughs> I will never get gilf. Never. Never. It's uh, never. It's horrible. (laughs) But um, so a a Zhangshir can be created um, in a number of situations, including magical resurrection or spirit possession of a corpse, an unburied corpse being struck by lightning or crossed by a pregnant black cat, a corpse absorbing chi energy, a person's chi being out of balance and their evil chi holding onto their body after death, a person's soul failing to leave the body because of an improper death, uh, suicide or malicious desire to stay, or when a live person is attacked by a Zhangshu and infected, much like a Western vampire. So the Zhangshu, like you mentioned, traditionally feed on the chi of the living, but as Western vampire lore uh, began to permeate more and more and become a popular import to China, some Zhangshu stories started to have them drink blood as well, like obviously we saw in this movie. So that's not not the traditional, but also not a total aberration when you look at uh, later Zhangshu lore coming out of China. Um, but my favorite thing about the Zhangshu is the, the kind of lore behind them, their history within Chinese folklore. So the, the kind of basis that you have to know is that it's really important in Chinese culture, as in many cultures, to make sure that the dead are brought home to be buried. So when somebody died far from home, they would need to be transported there. And when a family couldn't afford a vehicle to carry the corpse, they would usually hire a Taoist priest who was said to reanimate the dead so that they could hop their way home. The actual form this took was these Taoist priests creating caravans of corpse carriers with corpses held up vertically in the air on bamboo poles like some kind of grisly scarecrow. And as they would walk through the countryside, the movement of the carriers would bounce the poles and the bodies would appear to hop above the landscape as they made their way home. Now, these caravans usually traveled at night, which is, of course, nice and cool for corpses, and they rang bells as they went to ward people away, as it was considered bad luck for the living to see a Jiangshu. Um, also probably why some people believe that the Jiangshu were a convenient cover for smugglers who wanted to scare off any interested officials from messing with the corpse caravan. Um, and just... I, the mental image this conjures, so incredible. Just the, above the There's skyline. There's so many stories here. Yeah, the, that twilight skyline, pastoral Chinese countryside, and just a line of rotting scarecrows hopping along. Just, oh, oh, amazing. This is the best opium smuggling story Absolute that will ever be. Absolutely. Like, if you are carrying <laughs> a dead corpse strung up on your back, nobody's going to check your backpack. but one last thing from the lore there are many many ways to fight off a jangshi um which is 
a great list to read through. And also, I want to say none of those ways include removing their bat bling. Um, but my favorite way that I have read about is to throw sticky rice at them to draw out their evil. And another missed opportunity in this movie was the food fight sequence in which they throw sticky rice at the seven golden vampires. <laughs> a different path I think I could have really, really enjoyed. But 100%, I definitely recommend reading up on them. The Zhangxie are so interesting. Um, I had a lot of fun doing the research there. And it's a really cool different vampire lore that is exciting. It's And especially as a kid that grew up in the... Uh, sexy twilight vampire era um <laughs> it's really fun to hear about these crusty ass vampires that are absolutely nasty <laughs> it's like do you have holy water no i have holy rice <laughs> yeah father bless this rice make it holy make it sticky father yeah please please it, actually i think a few of the the uh ways to fight them were food food involved so i i could absolutely see like a chinese satire horror movie coming out of the the juncture food fight <laughs> like it would be amazing uh, one more fun fact about the movie um the the british producer don houghton was married to an actress named peek sen lim who later became the narrator for dark souls which i think is just an mm -hmm. incredible little fun piece of lore there it is yeah so then the last thing that i really want to say about the legend of the seven golden vampires kind of comes back to to the uh, the director uh, the british director roy ward baker and i mean he gave all those lovely quotes about the film being again a failure an absolute failure and I think it really reflects on the directors when we're looking at Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires and Haosu, two films that both have become kind of cult classics in a way. I think it speaks a lot about the directors. Like, Roy Ward Baker did not appreciate the treatment that his movie got. He entirely panned his own movie and did not have, you know, a good sense of humor about it. But yeah. Haosu, absolutely cult classic movie, and... Obayashi, absolute champion, Nobuhiko Obayashi, he loves this movie and has the entire time from beginning to end through every stage of its release and its subsequent kind of reaction, he still loves it. And that's, I, I think, it's just so nice to see, to see somebody who loves his work and stands by it. Well, if you watched Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires and Haosu like we did back to back, you basically went from wondering if you might be on drugs to wondering when the drugs were going to wear off and you didn't want them to wear <laughs> off. Good news, you can go back and do it again. Um, crazy thing about both these films is that when I think about the box office to budget on both of these, I don't really have much to go on. Um, one of my favorite film critics is James Rolfe, the angry video game nerd. Um, who I've loved since his Friday the 13th review many, many moons ago. Uh, I watched his review after watching Haosu and our opinions align. Haosu is an experience. <laughs> it's like Cirque du Soleil or really good ice cream. Uh, you can't really explain ice cream. It's just a lot more fun to just eat the ice cream rather than talk about it. And it's the same thing here with Haosu. Mm -hmm. um, what is amazing is how long it took for this film to get an official release in North yeah. America. 32 years. And then a company called Eclipse screened it at the New York Asian Film Festival. And director Ty West was kind enough to step up and do a video talking about the film. And then it exploded rather quickly because A, it was Ty West, and B, it was a fucking amazing movie. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah it's so good please. yeah and if you're talking about reviews there's another one um chuck stevens review uh, of house for criterion yeah. a wild read but he calls it uh a modern masterpiece of le cinema du wtf which is great and then he also uh continues quote house is a film that must be seen to be believed and then seen again to believe that you really did see what you think you saw end quote and uh, which i think is very true given that my first watch through finished around 2 a.m and i was sitting in my dark room just absolutely reeling <laughs> like, like i had a great time but i sat there and i was like did that all really just what what <laughs> like it was I'm not a person who typically wants to loop a movie, and I can wait many years before re-watching a movie, even one that I like, but this is one that I absolutely just wanted to click replay on. <laughs> but holy shit, do I love this movie. Like, this was one that I finished, and I was like, this is it. This is 
a perfect movie. This is everything I wanted and everything I didn't know I wanted wrapped up into one neat little cat-filled package tied with a pretty ribbon bow and oh, perfect. And laced with acid mm-hmm. and LSD and pretty much every mm-hmm. other goddamn thing you can get high yeah. and psychedelic off This of. is a movie that tells you you don't <clears throat> need to fucking do drugs because I exist. <laughs> right. <laughs> Salvador Dali would say that people think I do drugs. I don't. I am drugs. Yeah, yeah, and that's Hausu. That's 100% Hausu. That's Hausu. My favorite part about it, too, is that, like, this movie happened because Toho saw Jaws come out and was like, wow, what a phenomenon. What can we do to create our Jaws? And this resulted in House <laughs> somehow. <Right. laughs> like, the process to get from point A to point B is such a wild fucking ride. <laughs> I mean, I understand that it, that it launched Obayashi's career, mm-hmm. right? He he won a Blue Ribbon Award for Best Director after that. I all I, I can also understand though that if you order a scrambled egg and you get a chocolate cake, <laughs> you might be a little confused. <laughs> I understand. I understand the producers. Yeah. I don't agree with their fucking decision to shelve the movie. Mm-hmm. I don't agree with their decision to not spread the thing like the plague to North America. I think that had this thing come out, because this thing came out in 77, Mm -hmm. this thing came out um, three years after the Rocky Horror Picture Show, (laughs) I do not know what was wrong with Toho. Like, if you're going to bring all, like, bring Godzilla and everything else across the ocean, I do not understand why this movie did not, like, immediately hit Absolutely, and it's also, as far as as I know, it didn't get a bad response for its original Japanese release either. It's not like it was something that panned there, and they were like, oh, I guess we won't send it to international release. It did well in Japan. (laughs) In terms of, like, the horror game, I've, I've only seen something like this once before, and I used to think that it was Warner Brothers' biggest mistake. Mm. There's a movie called Trick or Treat, which should have been released like in 2006, 2007, but they shelved it because they didn't want it to compete with the Saw franchise at the Mm. time. Michael Doherty um, of X-Men 2 uh, was the person who who directed it, wrote it, created it. He was a brilliant student out of NYU. Um, And then they shelved this movie and when it came out, you know, people were fighting to get this movie to come out. I was one of the first people online to buy it at Best Buy. I was there at like 7 o'clock. I waited there. It's like the, the place isn't going to open till 10. I was in the parking lot at 9.30 waiting to go in and pull like one of three copies off the shelf and bring it home. Um, I I think that everybody who watched it afterwards, because I passed it around, I showed it to my lawyer. You know, and people, people who I wasn't even like that close with, showed it to my fucking lawyer, my neighbors. It's like trick or treat's fucking awesome. Pass it on. And I watched it, and I thought, and then you know, I thought, my God, what a mistake from Warner Brothers. I thought that was probably the biggest mistake a film studio mm-hmm. ever fucking made. But. I'm 38, I'm still relatively young, and I saw Hausu, and I'm like, no, Hausu is the biggest fucking mistake a studio ever made. I mean, so far, I have no idea um, whether or not another film company will come out with an even bigger chunk of diamond-crusted mm-hmm. gold mm-hmm. that they locked away in a vault for absolutely no reason. I don't know how much money they lost by keeping it, like, in cold storage, yeah. but that's, like... I don't know how I would react. I would I'd like I would literally walk in with a samurai sword, hand it to the guy who shelved it. I'd be like, "Now, on the floor now. Restore honor now." <laughs> yeah. Right? I mean, I Go. I get that they thought it was like a risky movie because they did from the beginning. They were saying um nobody at Toho, the production company wanted to direct this movie because everyone was scared of it. Like every single established director at the company was afraid to have this movie on their resume, um, which is why they finally drafted Obayashi. So Obayashi had been mostly doing um, commercial work and smaller kind of independent film pieces, uh, but doing a lot of art house stuff, which some of the producers at Tohu saw invited him to work with them. um, But he was still an out of house director. So it was a big deal for him to get the job. Um, But he made this movie his own and just my favorite thing about yeah. the production of this is the involvement of uh of obayashi's daughter chigumi um yeah. so he knew he wanted to make this a horror movie but he was like okay i could write this on my own but that would be boring um he really wanted to hit on these specific childhood fears so he went to his 11 year old daughter 
and was like, hey, hey, kiddo, what fucking scares the shit out of you? Right. <laughs> and Chigumi came in clutch. She told she right. told her dad the story of seven schoolgirls in a possessed house, and her ideas show up all throughout the movie. So many of the deaths, including the like really specific childhood fear of having futons fall on you, which I love. Like that's the kind of thing when I was watching it, it felt so out of left field because I have never seen someone die from having bedding fall on them in a movie. But it absolutely hits this like primal childhood kind of fear point that really translates effectively. Um, and he also, he just makes sure to include his family in it. So in the movie itself, uh, Nobuhiku Obayashi, the director, and his wife Kyoko appear in the movie as husband and wife. That's how they're credited anyway. And his daughter Chigumi is the shoe store girl. Um, and Kyoko, his wife, later became his producer. So it's really a family affair kind of thing, which I really wonder how how long they made Chigumi wait before she was allowed to see the movie. <laughs> I mean, hopefully a while. <laughs> but <laughs> At least, uh, who knows? Who knows? Uh, but she, I wonder if she understood when she was telling that story, the legacy that she would create. <laughs> but it's just, it's so good. And it's really interesting, too, um, because you do have this movie that is such a kind of family movie for Obayashi, but he is also really unabashed about exploring sexuality in this movie and in a lot of his work. I mean, House is clearly very sexual. There's a lot of, like, young women exploring their burgeoning sexuality throughout the movie, as well as, like, gratuitous panty sniffing and just titties for no reason. Um, but um, a lot of his movies are, but my favorite piece of this, of his horny work, that is, is a very horny advertisement that he directed for Mandom Cologne, which is mostly Charles Bronson taking <laughs> off his shirt and caressing his own naked torso with cologne, while this really gravelly voice is like, Mandom, <laughs> just the entire time for a cologne literally called Mandom. Like, I... I don't know what their market was when this commercial was initially made, but I'm sure it immediately hit a different one. But please look it up. Just to make you feel really, really high when you're yeah. watching it. Yeah, please look it up. Just, Did you... mm, what a masterpiece. <laughs> Did you get a chance to read Walter de la Mer's The Riddle? I did. I did. Yeah. It was his uh, his producer, was it, who uh, who read his script yeah. and was like, hey, uh, did you yeah. read The Riddle? Because, wow. Um, right. Yeah. So there's a lot of things that kind of match up, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's So it's a diff and it reads as a very, I would say, a much calmer story than Aosu does. Shorter. Much shorter, too. It was very, it's a very quick Yeah. The read. whole thing fits on, like when you sent me the link fit on one page um but right. it was a uh, a very quick some kind of version of the house consumed the children um model yeah it's it's a the trunk consumed mm -hmm. children and still got that family connection too yeah. which is the more interesting thing that the family is still a big overtone in it it's just that in the in the story it's a grandmother and in the in house it's an aunt mm -hmm. And it's it's I really really appreciated that that there was still an effort to keep everything within a realistic time mm -hmm. span. I also kind of found it very interesting that there was like even for one page long of a story, um, there's this this moment where it feels kind of incestual between a brother yeah, and a sister. That was weird. And I was like, okay, we got all the Lannister we mm -hmm. needed in like one paragraph. Yeah, like that and manages like, to be. Oh, Right. A very brief and almost sweet, but very fucked up story. And it, it was yeah. interesting, too, because I really feel like while it reads um, a lot cleaner, a lot less gory and all over the place, like it feels like a more tame story initially. In a lot of ways, it feels more sinister because one of the things that really surprised me when I was watching Haosu was um, kind of the... The fact that Auntie didn't really treat Gorgeous, who is her blood relation, any differently than she treated the other girls. Like, my kind mm -hmm. of horror movie brain expected her to be, like, the last one standing because the story was ostensibly right. about her. It was her family. It was yeah. her house. It was her mother. It takes it takes a baseball bat to the final Absolutely. But so there was no compassion for her blood. And the same thing in The Riddle. 
that grandmother was like, well, these are all my grandchildren and fuck them. <laughs> <Right. laughs> like, I mean, but the thing is, the thing about the trunk and the house, mm-hmm. the thing that they share in common that make them horror stories is that we're not really completely 100% certain what happens to the kids yeah. in in the riddle. And we're not really completely mm-hmm. sure about what happens to the girls in house yeah. because, well... The trunk is happy and it's perfumed and it's got happy sounds and noises in it. And it could just be bait for letting them get eaten uh, the same way the house could be. But it could also be that the kids come back as ghosts in their own mm-hmm. way and that they're also enjoying themselves. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I mean, that's when you look at the, the end of Haosu when um, when Gorge kind of ghost gorgeous because gorgeous has clearly been like possessed by the house possessed by the memory uh-huh. of her mother possessed by who the hell knows what but she's very clearly present she doesn't she's not eaten in the way that the others are but she does say at the end when she's talking to her stepmother be, before her head burns off um <laughs> but she does say you know oh they'll wake up soon they wake up when they're hungry so right. it very much seems like the other girls are not gone they're just part right. of the house now. <laughs> Pre- yes. Or they're a different type of yeah. ghost, which is where we can totally segue <laughs> into the number seven and both of these films. So for those who do not know, the seventh month in the Buddhist calendar is very interesting. Uh, if you don't know, it's what's known as the Hungry Ghost Month. Um I have bad news for those of you who think that Halloween is awesome. <laughs> Halloween is awesome, but um, it's not a month long. But in Asia, Halloween's a month. Halloween's not like a day or three days or a week. No, in 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 Asia, Halloween's a month long. We we got we got screwed, and we really need to <laughs> protest and set fires and riot and kill some people until we get like a month long Halloween. We just need to do whatever's necessary. Um, but yeah, but that's, unfortunately, we haven't gotten there yet, um, any day now. And the interesting thing about the number seven is that we have seven, we have seven women, we have seven, we have seven vampires, and in the story of the seven golden vampires, we had seven brothers, uh, and we totally discount the sister, which I was really not (laughs) cool with. Like, we should have just killed one brother. Yeah, we should have, like, the seven siblings or something. Um, or the seven, or the seven chings, right? Because, like, you know, mm-hmm. could have just given them the last name, but no. No, and also the sister had a different um, last name. Why? Who could say? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. They really tried to set her outside the family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it wasn't cool with that. Um, but yeah, there was a, there's definitely a lot of moments where we see instances of the number seven. And the reason why we see seven is because it's a reference to... Uh, the fact that seven is a very double-sided number. Seven can be very lucky, uh, but seven is also incredibly supernatural mm-hmm. because of its connection to the Hungry Ghost Month. Uh, for those who are more interested, I will post links to that stuff in our uh, you know episode description. Uh, we'll also be posting links to the uh, the uh, Walter de la Mare's The Riddle. Um, so, yeah. yeah, and while we're talking about, about the, the supernatural, I have a lot to say about, about yokai. <laughs> I, I, I really wanted to, like, I was like, I really want, I'm ready to bat this back to Axis. I'm like, nah, this is, like, now Axis is going to just take <laughs> I'm over. I'm ready to fucking go. Yeah, I mean, if I if we thought I had fun, in, you know, looking at the Jiangshu, which I did. Oh, boy, did we have fun with yokai. So I want to talk about Yurei and yokai. So, yeah. This is the whole world of talking about spirits in Japan. So the clearest and probably most general spirit reference in the movie is when Gorgeous begins to take on the trait of a yurei after her scary mirror time. So a yurei is a pretty general term for any Japanese ghost um, with subclassifications within it, but the general appearance of a yurei, the way they're most typically represented in imagery, is pure white clothing, black hair, often long and tangled, which isn't the case here, but a bride has to be pretty, and Hitodama, um, which is the pair of will-o'-the-wisps that accompany them, which we saw floating around gorgeous in her walk through the garden. 
So this is the basic, the most generic, like, hey, she's a ghost signaling that you can get in the movie. Now let's dive into yokai, because yurei is like a general ghost term. Yokai is when we get into demons. And there is a whole wild world of yokai, some with kind of varying degrees of specificity, some that really clearly map onto the movie, and some which are a looser kind of affinity link, I would say, but really freaking fun to talk about, so we're going to! Um, <laughs> first, let's continue with Gorgeous, because there is a yokai called the uh, Ungaikyo, which is a possessed mirror that causes people to see their reflection as what the mirror wants, trapping their spirit in the mirror. Also, the reflections that the mirror shows are typically demonic, which makes it all the more interesting that when Gorgeous was looking into the mirror, and when shit really hits the fan for her, the reflection in the mirror is of her aunt's face, which really buffs up the fact that her aunt's a fucking demon. So she, it's possible that, you know, she was taken over, killed by the Ungaikyo. And then this one is a little more tangentially related, but there is a spirit called the Aunyobo, and that is a spirit of poverty and misfortune who is known for adopting abandoned houses of nobility. And the real trait that they're known for is constantly fixing their hair and makeup as they wait for guests who will never come. Which sounds a good bit like our good friend Gorgeous. Probably isn't because they're also usually blue-skinned ogres, but I think in her, her ghostly life, Gorgeous could make a great one. Um, let's talk about Auntie now. So we talked a little bit in the watch along already about how Auntie is a Hashihime, or a maiden of the bridge. So Hashihime is an oni, a jealousy demon, that is formed when a woman is left waiting for her husband or lover who never returns. And that's usually due to infidelity. In house, auntie's husband never returns from the war, but there's also possibly an implication that he was unfaithful to her, because it was Gorgeous's mother who saw him off to the war because auntie was too emotional. And also, Gorgeous's mother kept the photo of him at her vanity. So it's, it's not confirmed, but it seems like the possibility yeah the possibility is there either way auntie maps really nicely onto the onto the hashihime in the watch along i also mentioned hanako-san who is a classic we love hanako-san um she comes from an urban legend of a young girl who died in a bathroom and causes range for that the cause for her death that is uh, usually given as physical abuse suicide or a world war ii air raid Hanako-san then haunts the bathroom, and she's become a really popular figure among schoolgirls who try to summon her much like Bloody Mary here in the West. So to summon her, you knock, you knock three times on the door of the third stall in the bathroom and call out to ask if Hanako-san is there. She should reply in the affirmative, and then either her ghostly hand or her full apparition will appear to the summoner and pull them down into the toilet and to hell. Or maybe she's eaten by a three-headed lizard sometimes. That's weird. We're ignoring that part in this uh, in this retelling. <laughs> but you gotta have a curveball in these stories. But Would have looked amazing on screen either yeah, way. Yeah, honestly. And, I mean, there was already a lizard in the movie. A three-headed lizard would not have surprised me, all things considered. Um, but Hanako-san is almost always rec uh, represented as a girl with short, dark hair wearing a red dress, exactly like Melody, who, after being possibly possessed or somehow affected by the house, reaches out her creepy hand from the bathroom. Plus, we know how Obayashi loves to talk about schoolgirls and World War II, so Hanako-san is, like, his perfect urban legend. Um... The next one I want to mention is uh, Kyokatsu, which translates to crazy bones, and that is the spirit of somebody whose body ends up in a well. So the improper burial means that the spirit cannot rest and creates a grudge in the bones, creating a Kyokatsu who curses anyone who disturbs their resting place. Now, these are usually skeletal remains, but hey, Mac hadn't had time to decompose yet, so she just had to have her head fly out of a well and bite her friend on the ass. But that... I think could be a kyokatsu. And the final one I wanted to talk about, the final yokai, there are certainly references I could have missed because I am not an expert in this. I'm just having a good old time. Um, but I want to talk about who could possibly defeat my best girl, Kung Fu, and that is Chochinobake, or the paper lantern ghost. So these ghosts are a little- Yeah, yeah. <laughs> these ones like are a little, um, a little less detailed in the records. They don't really have any recorded legends about them, but they are known primarily as yokai that exist in pictures. They've been appearing in 
illustrations and his characters in card games since the 1600s, um, which are the first, you know, recorded ones, uh, recorded records of them we can find. But who knows? They probably went earlier, too. And that's because fucking lamps get shit done. They leave no survivors. <laughs> Nobody gets out of the house. They're just like, yeah. boom, you're fucking dead. Yeah, for real. They, they're they typically represented. Um, they look like a, t- a standard paper lantern with some type of face, either weirdly humanoid pasted on a lamp or a stylized face split into the paper. And while Kung Fu's brutal murderer did not have a face, that lamp was fucking hungry and got its job done. So there are so many links. This is the thing that I really love about Haosu because it's something that is so clearly new and fresh and plays with a lot of old tropes but Haosu knows its history Haosu pulls on so much existing lore and legend to create something really new I am really disappointed I could not find any records for uh, watermelon yokai or banana yokai for uh, Mr. Togo but... (laughs) Um, hey, I, uh, I guess uh, Obayashi had to get creative somewhere. Um, also, if wait, wait, whoa, whoa, you 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 forgot the cat. Oh well, yes, of course, the cat. I have I have a whole separate section of notes about Blanche. Oh well, then I apologize. I'm just gonna sit back and be quiet then. No, no. We talked a lot about Blanche in the watch along. Um, she's typically referred to as a abakaneko or or a kaibyo, um, but she's part of this really broad lore of Japanese movies that I did not know about, about mystical and murderous cats that are often tied to houses. So if you're looking for more in that vein, the two big ones that I found are Koraneko, or Black Cat, which was made in 1968, also by Toho, um, and then Black Cat Mansion, which was made in 1958 by Shin Toho, which interestingly was founded by former Toho employees after a big strike. So we've got two Toho murder cat mansion stories and then a Toho spin-off murder cat mansion story. So uh, there's there's a lot a lot more cat murder if you're uh, if you're interested. But vengeful cats are a really big theme. If you start looking into the yokai lore, there are several different types of cat ghosts and cat spirits. And one of the really common themes is that they'll often be kind of spirits that were given the task of revenge for somebody who died. Um, so it, it raises some questions with Blanche. I mean, Blanche does seem like she could be a, a free operator in some sense, but she's she's who is she working for? Is she working for Auntie? Is she working for the house? Is she working for herself? Are they all one big hive mind entity? Mysteries abound, but who boy. I feel like they became a supernatural ecosystem yeah. following the Yeah, death. absolutely. I feel like, they are symbiotic hunters. I feel hunters. like this became, right, this is kind of like when you open up, like, the fridge after, like, many, many years, and there are just many different fungi coexisting mm-hmm. together. That's what it felt like to mm-hmm. me. Yeah. I mean, the other time that we see a cat like Blanche in more modern times, and the ant, is in Luigi's Mansion 3. <laughs> Um, Helen Gravely is definitely just like the ant with the whole pattering the nose and, you know, having an uglier form when stressed. And of course there is Polter Kitty and Polter Kitty is the most annoying and challenging, uh, boss in all of Luigi's Mansion 3, which is just trying to get this cute little kitty's tails off because when it gets, when it gets you... If you turn your back on it, it turns into a gigantic panther-sized <laughs> uh, psychopath cat, which is really amazing and entertaining. Um, but yeah, it's it's definitely a huge part of Japanese lore yeah. and culture. Yeah, and it's interesting that you mentioned taking the tail off. That's a big part of um, a lot of the cat mm-hmm. legends you'll find. Actually, That's people right. talk about how nowadays cat, many cats in Japan will have shorter tails than cats elsewhere in the world because they've been selectively bred for that over time because according to folklore the longer the tail the more mischievous and dangerous the cat is so people would literally cut off their cat's tails or lean towards cats with short tails so all those nubby little tail cats is you know Japan is to thank for that <laughs> right selective <laughs> breeding yeah, there's a lot of wild cat lore in Japan. I mean, I think stuff has 
leveled out nowadays, but historically there's all sorts of stuff about how people would keep cats, but once a cat got too old, they were more at risk of right. becoming a demon. So you could only keep a cat right. for seven years, um, and then right. you had to let that kitty go. So I feel bad for all the Japanese house cats that had, you know, seven years of luxury, and then were eight. like, yeah, <laughs> fucking hit the road, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> one thing that i found really weird about that was once its tail got to a certain length it would supposedly like splice mm -hmm. in two and then it would become a demon and you're thinking okay this has to be based on something so like did it was there really like a mutant cat with two tails that just caused a lot of fucking trouble <laughs> back in like you know like two thousand three thousand years ago i could totally yeah. see that there's just like this one bad cat yeah i <laughs> that just ruined it for the rest of the that's cats. the movie i want to see i want to see that original original demon cat coming in to fuck shit up and create right. a, create a legacy Oh. <laughs> they took her kitty liver, so she took their lives. <laughs> oh, wow. I mean, I think we figured out at this point that I want to see every cat movie, but that one especially. Like, give me give me the cat murder. I'm just, I'm ready. I mean, I would, the entire movie, Blanche is fucking everyone up the entire way through. And I was sitting there, I'm like, I would let Blanche kill me because she deserves it. She's so pretty. She's so perfect. Like, she would. She would murder the hell out of me, take no prisoners. And I would I would thank her for it because I love her so much. <laughs> because then you would be able to spend the rest of your eternity in a gigantic cat house, killing whoever the hell made the mistake of coming okay, in. Okay, seriously. I mean, the one thing that's kind of a downside, though, is that... If I understood that whole story correctly, you're never going to see any guys again, though. Because who needs I mean, them? And that's for better or for worse, right? <laughs> who needs them? You've got cats and, and lots right. of cute schoolgirls. Like it's a perfect setup. <laughs> like... I stand corrected. You're right. You're right. But yeah, the, it is interesting that nobody can see. No man can apparently see yeah. the house. I mean, watermelon men can see the house, which makes me wonder if Banana Togu could see the house. But he never made whatever. it that far. I mean, watermelon man, watermelon man, I just think is a watermelon. Who so? And if he is a watermelon, he he can see whatever the fuck he wants. I think Auntie is like, you are a tasty treat that is of utility to me. So you are allowed to see me, but never come near me. <laughs> right. Ugh. What a perfect movie. I want to talk a little more about, really about Obayashi as well. Um, mm -hmm. Because just yeah. the, the process of working with him sounds so nice. And as somebody who has acted with really good directors and really bad directors, I'm always really refreshed to hear stories about people who are nice to work with. Um, yeah. So, Agreed. yeah, he sounds like he was so much fun to work with. He would, he spent a lot of the filming process skipping around, singing and giving quizzes to the actresses. So he would like put together trivia for all of the young actresses. And speaking of young actresses, it is something I want to talk about. He has talked really openly about how important it was to him to prioritize having young people involved with the movie. Um, so that's part of asking his daughter for story advice. That's part of uh, making sure that Go Die Go was part of the musical uh, work for the movie, having stuff feel contemporary to younger people. Um, and he also said what, about selecting actors, um, he said, quote, when I was still young, my job was to raise newcomers, people I had met for the first time into stars. I also used a lot of veterans and sub-stories in what would become their last movie, end quote. And that's from a Japan Times wow. interview with Mark Schilling, which is just such a lovely mentality. I mean, I'm, yeah. I clearly, I think it's so great to be willing to work with actors who don't necessarily have the the proven track record but like the actresses here they were actresses he had worked with almost all of them they were actors from commercials from small independent films and if it, this was like another big name director who was directing this movie none of them would have gotten cast in this aside from like the two big names who exist here but all of those that cast of schoolgirls probably wouldn't have gotten to be in this movie but he kind of took the chance on them and he did have to do a lot of work into training them into teaching them like kind of teaching them the ropes but for several of them pretty much everybody except melody i think it did turn into a career a lot of them continued acting later in life yeah and it was also i love yeah, the yeah. idea of taking these veterans who are kind of chilling out on the craft who are ready to just take a step back and it's like hey uh you want to have a really fucking good time before you throw in the right. towel <laughs> 
what a dream. You've had this distinguished career. And then he's like, hey, do you want to be a murderous house aunt who dances on the beams? Come on. (laughs) Right. To me, that made sense, though. It's like, hey, you've done everything else. Why not just do this? Like, you know, you're bored as shit anyway. Mm -hmm. So come along. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was like the magic school bus for fucking everyone yes, who was involved. That's yes, really what it yeah, was. Yeah, absolutely. And he, there are a couple more quotes from him that I love. I I mean, I could pull quotes from Obayashi all day long, but um, let me see. Yeah, he, he says, uh, he also says, quote, I just try hard and honestly to express myself freely without telling lies. That is my movie. Li- that's my movie life, which I love um, because there is clearly so much of a passion project in this movie and it's also so much fun and talking again about the shooting process the the process of working with him in a 2014 interview with tokyo weekender he said the shooting is very random it's almost like making a sculpture and taking out little pieces and then putting them back in that's the editing process but what i do is take that little piece out and put it somewhere else and see what happens maybe create a little dent and then put it back i call it a charming chaos i want to communicate with the audience i want them to find their own way and get them lost first and have them find their own way back Calling his movie yeah. a charming chaos is the most delightful phrase that just clicks. It's perfect. I love it. A charming chaos. <laughs> I always wonder what, what Quentin Tarantino thought of him because that's probably mm. the only person. Yeah, that's the only director where I'm sitting there and I'm always wondering, what did Quentin think? Because this is probably one of the only directors who could have, like, you know, realistically held the same sort of ground as, as Quentin. Yeah. And I think... Yeah, it's just really this this really amazing director, mm-hmm. and it wasn't and it has nothing to do with being surreal or not surreal. It's just all this care and attention and love to the process yeah. and everything he did in post edit was just amazing. Mm-hmm. And just, he took so many he risks. Like he he was so willing yeah. to just fucking hammer it and try new stuff. I mean, the technical effects for this movie were pretty radical at the time and he was testing a lot of stuff there was a lot of blue screen usage but also like blue body paint so he was dripping paint on people so their bodies would disappear in post and he didn't know what half of this movie was going to look like until they were in post because these were untested techniques for a lot of it and he even said like when he was colorizing certain things he wasn't really always sure Mm -hmm. about what was going to pop out of it and that is yeah yeah, it's it's ballsy yeah i was the the decision to like Mm -hmm. fucking chop in Gumby you know um, stop motion sequences uh-huh. another thing where you're just like what the hell are you thinking you're fucking genius for doing yeah. it though you know like every part of the movie you're just sitting there and you're staring at it like wondering what brain put this together but it works and it works because like he did it all with such exuberance so every moment of it whether it's like a weird technical effect or a weird kitschy piece of acting just hits with such a genuine feeling of somebody who was like i'm having a great time doing what i'm doing (laughs) and i think that's why it's so enjoyable like it really seems like everything is done with so much love and so much joy which makes it so much fun to watch and it's really interesting too thinking about this um thinking about this as obayashi's first movie when he's gone on to make a lot of other movies and a lot of movies that are much more serious pieces he's really well known for his trilogy on world war ii he really hits a lot of like hard topics but it's it's really refreshing to see somebody who can you know hit both ends of the spectrum kind of um with such a plum in both cases and that's mm-hmm. one of one of the last quote i want to pull from him it's one that i love so much because i think it's so hopeful for artists and for actors um he said when he was asked that the most important thing of all is to do, quote, something that no one has done before. Some say that movie that because movies have a long history and everyone all over the world has been making them, everything has been done already. There's nothing more to do. I say that's nonsense. There are still a lot right. of things that have never been done. And I feel like everything Obayashi did proved this. I mean, he put together a movie that has become a cult classic that pulls on stories that are old, that pulls out stories that are new. And he made something so unique out of that. And I don't know. I just I find it a really inspiring movie uh, to 
Just do whatever the fuck you want, try out your art, and see what comes out of it, and hey, maybe you'll hit on Haosu. Maybe you'll hit your own weird occult classic masterpiece. Yeah. And I just, yeah. I wish, Being I wish I could give, is awesome. yeah, wish I could give Obayashi a hug. Thank you. Thank you, Nobuhiko Obayashi. You were a real champion. I miss you. <laughs> so, um, how does it relate to Howl's Moving Castle? <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Moner knows. Because you said you saw it in, in several different, you saw, you saw it in some of your work. I mean, mm-hmm. I definitely saw pieces of it in, you know, I saw some of the Lauren Luigi's Mansion 3, but you definitely could see certain relations yeah. between... Yeah, it was really interesting. So Howl's Moving Castle is like my all-time favorite movie. Love it. Um, and that is another movie that came out of Toho, Toho Studios. Um, and it was really interesting because they are ostensibly so unrelated. It's, um, you know, animation. It's an entirely different process. But it was really interesting looking at the two movies in context because how so you have this animated house and the whole idea of Howl's Moving Castle is that you have a moving castle. The whole thing is a hodgepodge of compiled parts, bits of old houses, bits of castles, bits of mechanical elements. Um, but it is very much an entity in its own right. And that is that is not explored in the same way that it is in Haosu, where Haosu is all about the house. The moving castle in Haosu's moving castle, I think is almost, a, it's really a framing device for the plot. But it was really fascinating while watching um, watching Haosu. You could see little visual references, little bits of the architecture, faces that you see come up in in the house itself, um, where you look at it in the right angle and you're like, oh, it's looking at me, <laughs> which is exactly right. how you feel when you're looking at the intricate design of Howl's Moving Castle and you're seeing little details, little tiny things that pop up and say, oh, this has agency. <laughs> like, this is a living yeah. creature in its own right. So it was really exciting to see those those kinds of links for me. Um, I was very happy. I again, I love Toho. Thank you, Toho. <laughs> Toho has given us some very interesting things over the years, including Godzilla. <laughs> um, so yeah, if you like these films and you're looking for comparable things to pair them with, for Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, I would pair it with Oily Maniac from 1976. And with How um, Axis also listed some catastic films. Uh, I feel this would pair really, really well with the Rocky Horror Picture mm-hmm. Show from 1975. Um, because both are uh, incredibly sexual, incredibly strange, and uh, they definitely have a layer of discomfort to them as well. There's 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 this all this fantasy and discomfort to it, where both the ant and Doctor Frankenfurter are just legendary characters. Mm-hmm. So yeah, those those I and that's that's actually that's really not a light comparison to put anything in the same category with the Rocky Horror Picture Show is is you know is an insane compliment. <laughs> So I think that, you know, if House and the Rocky Horror Picture Show were side by side, I think that is a very fair uh, bridging of East and West. So, yeah, those would be my choices. Yeah, absolutely. And enjoy a a fucking trip of a night if you watch both of them in a row. (laughs) Yeah. I would, re- I would definitely feel like I was on drugs after watching that, too. Like, all, both House House, Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, these were, like, really weird and trippy things to layer together. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, again, yeah. just an experience. I cannot emphasize enough that it is an experience. <laughs> but glad you've been along for the ride. Also, I'd like to point out that I think Axis just uh, discovered a new horror subgenre. Murder Cat Mansion stories uh, sound like a fine idea to me. Up next is horror author Ken Huller, guest anchoring for the Horror News. Stay tuned. Although Tales to Terrify is currently closed for paid submissions, they are open to flash fiction pieces of up to 2,500 words. You can learn more at https colon backslash backslash tales to terrify.com backslash submissions backslash. The Dark is an online magazine that's looking for fiction pieces from 2,000 to 6,000 words. Visit http colon backslash backslash thedarkmagazine.com backslash submission hyphen guidelines backslash for more details. 
The Nightmares and Phantasms podcast is currently open to submissions of a thousand to six thousand words. For more information, www.lompublishing.com/backslash/submission-call. Please note that even though the late night does its best to bring horror authors the most up-to-date information for the publication venues, it cannot guarantee that all the aforementioned information will remain valid. All submissions should be considered tentative and subject to change. If you're a magazine or press that's interested in having your submissions advertised on the late night, you can write to monerlawrence at hotmail.com. The Late Night, a horror podcast, is brought to you by Moner T. Lawrence. Find us at moneria.com and The Late Night Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.